Welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here in North Texas. I'm your host, Eric Egan. Our guest on this episode is Kevin Hinckley, a licensed professional counselor, and we will be talking about anxiety. But first, a little more about Kevin. Along with the work he does as a counselor, he is the author of several books, he is a popular speaker, and he leads LDS tours to Book of Mormon, church history, and biblical sites. He also teaches a weekly virtual class on Facebook and YouTube called LDS Class Discussions with Kevin Hinckley. Kevin and his wife, Cindy, are the parents of four children and have 14 grandchildren. They are members of the Plano, Texas Stake. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's start out by talking a little bit about what you do for a living and uh, your experience in that field. How long have you been in practice? I've been able to work with uh, families uh, on and off for about uh, about 30 years. my, my current practice at the moment, I've been working in for about 11, uh, where it's almost strictly an LDS practice uh, here in Plano. And uh, just love being able to do that and, and work with uh, members throughout the area. It's, it's been a real joy. What interested you in going into that field to begin with? Well, <laughs> I, I think I scared my wife half to death. I think I was <laughs> uh, halfway through my junior year at BYU in... Uh, business management and was not having a real great time of it. And uh, we actually had a chance to run a, uh, a group home for developmentally disabled adults. And as we were doing that, I found that I really had a passion for being able to kind of sit down and talk to our residents. And, and uh, it was about that time that I came home and announced to my wife a year and a half before graduating that, Hey, I think I want to change my major. (laughs) Uh, I realize we have a couple of kids and, and a lot of debt, but I think I'd rather go into psychology and have to go to graduate school. How about that? (laughs) And uh, bless her heart. uh, She was a, she was a good soldier and just said, okay, if that's where we want to be, let's do it. Um, And, but I haven't really looked back since then. It's been a wonderful ride. That is great. And I'm, I'm sure over those 30 years, uh, you've seen quite a bit change and evolve as it relates to people and relationships and mental wellness and those things. There are a lot of ways to approach uh, counseling and therapy. Um, and so on, on one side, yeah, there's a lot of techniques and things that I think get refined and changed over time. But the wonderful thing about uh, psychology is that the psychology of people doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fascinating to, to read in the scriptures, uh, and, and I see the same patterns happen uh, in the lives of uh, the disciples and in the Book of Mormon. You see the same psychological patterns playing out uh, over time. It It has always kind of given me a little added insight sometimes into why are they doing some of the things that they're doing? And then looking at it and saying, you know, human psychology hasn't changed probably since Adam. It looks very familiar. It looks very familiar. <laughs> well, in this episode, we'd like to talk a little bit about anxiety. As this pandemic continues, we're in, in kind of a difficult time. And now we're into the holiday season this year. And uh, I've, I've heard people talk about anxiety and even increasing yeah. anxiety. So we'd like to get your expertise on that and, and learn a little bit about anxiety and how we might cope and how we might help other people. Terrific. Let's do that. 
Well, let's just start really basic. Uh, what is anxiety? That's an easy answer and, and a much more complex uh, answer. The kind of the straightforward answer is that it's actually a, a physiological reaction to a threat. That in a sense, when, when our body, uh, specifically uh, uh, when our brain recognizes that we're under attack or under threat of some type, it actually sets off a, a whole series of reactions within the body uh, intended to help protect. And, and I think most of us understand some things about uh, fight or flight uh, as the amygdala in our brain is firing down to our adrenal glands. Uh, but I don't think we always really realize that uh, true anxiety um, is the body responding by raising our heart rate as it tries to move blood into the big muscles of our body. Um, it responds by changing our blood pressure, um, dilating our eyes, um, shutting down our immune system, uh, pulling blood out of our ability to think. Uh, and so uh, stress kind of makes us dumb, if you mm. will. Uh, so in some ways, anxiety, we think of it as emotional, but it's very, very much a physiological reaction uh, in a lot of systems of our body uh, in responding to threat. Now, the other thing that makes it a little more complex is simply the fact that anxiety is a very large umbrella. Uh, and there's a lot of things tucked under the anxiety umbrella. Because uh, on one side, we can have uh, full-on panic attacks and uh, flashbacks to past traumas on one side. And it can go all the way to the other side where it, we're in, we're under some stress uh, some lower anxiety, uh, heightened worry about things. Technically, that's all anxiety, but that doesn't mean that all anxiety is clinical anxiety that affects uh, our ability to function, maybe affects our, the choices that we make about where we go, who we talk to, uh, whether we're afraid we're going to faint in the middle of a sacrament meeting talk, for instance. So it's kind of it's a pretty broad category, uh, but all but all it is basically is the body responding naturally to uh, some kind of threat heading in its direction. You mentioned the fight or flight, and I think a lot of times we think of that we think of things like stress or fear. Yeah. But it sounds like while there may be some similar symptoms, anxiety really is a little more distinct than that. Yeah, it, it is. And and that's why with things like stress that I think we all that we all experience uh, a lot in our lives, uh, we can have some lower levels of physiological response. Uh, we're kind of lightly hyperventilating where our ability to think is a little bit impaired. Uh, ongoing stress over a long period of time can result in a dripping of cortisol, for instance, into our into our bloodstream that can in the long run clog arteries. But, but again, at, at the higher levels, uh, higher levels of anxiety or people that have clinical anxiety or panic attacks, their, their ability to function can be really compromised. It can really get in the way of being able to manage from day-to-day -day basis simply by the way that their brain is thinking and responding to, to, to threats sometimes that aren't even there. You know, so many of the, so much of stress and anxiety is about worrying about things that will never happen. 
But the brain doesn't know that. It just is responding to a threat, even if it's something that is, you know, five years in the future or something that we're just worried about. The body will just respond. Well, certainly that's very distressing for people experiencing that. And uh, somehow they have to figure out how to cope with that. Yeah. And the interesting thing about coping is that we cannot not cope. We're, we're going to cope. Uh, sometimes we'll choose healthy ways. Uh, we may choose to respond to stress and anxiety by kind of getting up and moving and, and relaxing and learning how to deep breathe. We can talk about some of those a little bit later if we want. But often uh, we respond in unhealthy ways. And to be honest with you, probably the most common reaction for most people to anxiety is avoidance. If we're in a situation where we're going to be stressed or anxietyed or panicked, what happens is if you just avoid that stimulus, then you don't get anxious. Mm. But that can actually then impact your ability to go and do things or be with people. Or, you know, you think about just simply the uh, somebody that has like a, a phobia of spiders. Well, they may be able to, they're anxious when they're around spiders, but if they put themselves in a situation where they're never around spiders, then they're not anxious. But that also may mean that they don't go on walks outside. They don't go in the backyard. They begin to restrict the things that they do in a way that prevents them from being able to to live life. Uh, a good example of that would be somebody that uh, has family around the country, but they have a fear of flying. Mm -hmm. And every time they think about getting on an airplane or drive by an airport and their heart rate starts to go up and, and they start to hyperventilate a little bit. And there's no question that if they can handle that anxiety by never flying, then they will never be in a plane crash. They're, they will never be in a plane afraid. And they will also probably visit their family a lot less. So anxiety in terms of coping with it is one of the few psychological things that I can think of where the way that you handle it is to do more of it. You, I call mm -hmm. it hugging the monster. You have to find a way to conquer the anxiety, not let the anxiety be the monster that controls your life and keeps you from doing the things that, that you want to do. You have to stop avoiding when avoiding is actually what your natural reaction is going to be. Stay away from it, yet you do have to approach it to really overcome it. Isn't that crazy? That, yeah. that in so many ways, if, if, you get, if, if you're afraid that you're going to get shocked by you know, putting your finger in a, in a light socket and you say, well, the only way to conquer it is I have to do it anyway, well, that wouldn't make any sense. But mm. for somebody that is afraid of heights, for instance, they panic at high places, to have to gradually work towards going to high places and finally conquering it. That kind of goes against our survival instinct, but go we must because the, the avoidance will take us over because it's progressive and it's relentless and it doesn't let up until we conquer it. So with that in mind, as any of our listeners may find themselves feeling anxious about things or in the early stages is it better then to seek some help and to cope with that sooner than later if it's truly just going to progress? Um, yeah, being able to, uh, to conquer anxiety actually has two legs to it. 
and and uh, both have to be addressed. Uh, and you start to conquer it when you have to take a look at your life and say, do I get anxious? And does it, how far is it cutting into my life? You know, you may have a fear of snakes, but never be around snakes. And that maybe that's no big deal and not worth working on. But if you, if you become really anxious, if you have to be around people, you're going to have to be able to go conquer that fear to be able to function normally. Well, in order to do that, the, like I say, there's two legs to it. And one is physical and one is mental. Usually when we talk about treating anxiety, we talk about a cognitive behavioral approach. The behavioral part's actually the easier part. Um, when I have people coming in and we're dealing with anything from panic attacks to, to a lot of other fears, I've got to be able to get them to relax physically. We've got to turn off the drip of adrenaline into their bloodstream. Well, we do that by doing a number of things that range anywhere from like the warming of extremities because the blood has left the extremities to get into the big muscles of the body. And I have them warming their fingers and, and being able to run up and down stairs. And we add to that then the ability to breathe, kind of do belly breaths, we call it, diaphragmatically breathing. I'm amazed how often like, I can see somebody sitting in front of me and I, we start talking about things that are anxious. And I watch their shoulders are rising far more and they're trying to breathe off of the top part of their lungs. And you can see them. They may not be aware that they're hyperventilating, but I can see them hyperventilating. I can see that they're breathing up high in their chest, not low in their, their belly. So trying to get them to belly breathe so that they breathe much more deeply. And by the way, anybody that's ever played a brass instrument, for instance, in a band or sung in a choir knows what we talk about when we talk about breathing diaphragmatically, where you take bigger, deeper breaths. Well, those deep breaths are the exact signal to the brain that we're safe, turn off the adrenaline. And so there are ways to physiologically turn the anxiety around simply by what we do in terms of warming our body up or breathing deeply, those kind of things. That's the physiological part. That's easy to train and people can learn how to do that relatively quickly. To be honest with you, what I don't always know is what it is that's driving the anxiety from a mental standpoint, because what we think drives what we feel. And so someone can be anxious, but we don't know what thoughts, conscious or unconscious, drive that anxiety. So it's a longer process to go through a thought process and find out at times when people are anxious, what were they thinking? What were they watching? What were they remembering? What uh, were they worried about? And how did they picture themselves in the future? That's a, that's a cognitive thought process that drives that anxiety and trying to find a way to counter those thoughts. That's kind of the, I guess that that's where I, I earned my money, so to speak, is trying to figure out what exactly were you thinking and why did you think it and where did that come from? And what do you think instead of that? That's really where the battle lies. So that's all part of the clinical treatment of anxiety, both elements there in play. It is. With homework assignments to go work on breathing and finding ways to uh, 
take care of yourself physically. And that includes sometimes sleeping, checking your sleep, uh, you know, what you're eating, those kind of things. And then, like I say, the rest of it is really kind of trying to chart, you know, I'll have, for instance, I'll have people put their anxiety on a scale of one to a hundred. And we're trying to figure out when the eighties and nineties showed up, uh, and exactly what that is and when that might happen. I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a, years ago, I had a, a, a wonderful man that had, uh, he was single and he had a, uh, a panic attack at church for a long time after that. Any, any time that he would go near the church, uh, he, his heart would start to pound, stomach could start to turn on him. Uh, if he tried to go to church, he couldn't get across the parking lot. He'd turn around and get back in the car and drive away. Um, and that anxiety just kept him away. And so we spent a long time in gradually having him hug that monster of being able to, just going to go over to the church and sit in the parking lot for a little while when on, on a non-Sunday, then we're going to have you gradually be there on a Sunday. We're going to have you gradually be in the parking lot, walk up to the building and turn around and get back in the car and go away. You know, all the time you're breathing, going to show up at church, walk into the building while church is in session, walk around the horseshoe of the hallway, walk out the building, get back in the car and drive away. Um, and then it was a, it was quite a victory for us when he drove up to the church, walked across the parking lot, went in and sat in sacrament meeting for five minutes in the back of the chapel mm -hmm. before he then got up and walked away. <laughs> you know, just these gradual steps. But it, it's funny at the end, when, when we started going through his thought patterns of why it is that he'd been so scared about it, it's, it's interesting that he actually was picturing himself showing up at church and the bishop calling on him to either give a prayer or asking him to give a talk the following week or something like that. And that's the thing, and he didn't always realize that that's exactly what was going on with him. But in his head, it was that fear of actually getting in front of the congregation and looking like an idiot <laughs> and, and not being able to do it or stammering or just kind of standing there red face and having to run down the aisle and out the door. And uh, so it turned out that there was some irrational thoughts that he was having about that entire experience. Is that a common thing in anxiety, the irrational thinking of whatever that fear is? If you think about it, almost all anxiety is irrational. <laughs> Obviously there's be some anxiety if you're doing something that is truly, you know, dangerous but you're exactly right. I would say about 90% of the anxieties we have, either they are fears in the future that will never happen. We're, we're just worriers or we're, we have what we call, what I call an awfulizer that takes little things and makes them big. Yeah. And then everything else, like, you know, th think about just a, a fear of, of, like we're talking about fear of spiders. We're an awful lot bigger than a spider <laughs> and it's kind of an irrational fear even with a poisonous spider, we're a lot bigger than it is. We can step on it. Mm -hmm. um, but but irrationally, somehow we've made that much bigger than it is. And you could talk to somebody that has anxiety when they fly, and they can tell you how irrational that thought pattern is. They know it's more dangerous to drive to the airport than fly out of the airport. Mm-hmm. 
and they know that rationally, and yet they're anxious anyway because of an irrational thought that's in there. That's part of the cognitive battle is having to battle the irrationality on that. It seems like when we hear about anxiety, we often hear it tied to depression as well. Is that a pretty typical scenario? Well, it is. You know, when when you look at someone that struggles with clinical depression, for instance, the, depression has a lot of flavors. And you can have uh, people that have a lot of, uh, like an angry depression. When they get depressed, they get incredibly irritable, hard to be around, and they're, and they're angry, and they're actually more depressed. But for a lot of people, depression and anxiety is really kind of tied together. And if nothing else, uh, being anxious is kind of a depressing thing because it is, it's cutting into your life. It's cutting into your ability to do things. But an awful lot of depressions have a huge anxiety component. And most, most antidepressants are also set up to deal with anxiety as well. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It's one thing for an individual to feel anxious and to have those experiences themselves. And then it's another thing to be a family member, a friend, a loved one of someone that's experiencing that. What, what advice would you give to friends and family members of those who are struggling with anxiety? You know, sometimes the, the, the difference between somebody who has experienced anxiety and depression trying to help somebody else and somebody who may not completely understand it is that if, if we're not careful, we can, we can kind of be of the, uh, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, suck it up, buttercup, let's go kind of thing. And, and push somebody uh, without giving them any of the tools to be able to get through a, a level of anxiety for a family member watching somebody else anxious there's some little cues that they can look for that tell them that somebody is dealing with a lot of anxiety. They can use the one that I use, for instance. I'm watching their shoulders. You know, if somebody looks like they're anxious, I'm watching for shoulders that are rising up and down and, and kind of a flushing. You can see somebody with a lot of anxiety and panic, even though they're not, it may not look like it on the outside. But if somebody is obviously panicking and they're anxious, th think about what we might do like with a child that's afraid of monsters under the bed or afraid of something in the future. What we do with kids is we have them uh, slow their breathing down and just relax. And we talk to them in calming voices and we get their eye contact and we recognize it. We have them slow everything down. We do that with kids quite naturally. We can do that with adults. And just let them know that it's going to be okay. Good eye contact. Have them slow their breathing down and have them talk about what's going on. We just have to be a lot more reassuring, I think, because recognizing what somebody may know that what they're reacting to is irrational. But at the end of the day, they're having a physiological response. Mm -hmm. Their heart is pounding. However dumb they might think it. Their breathing is driving the blood out of the front part of their brain. They can't think as well. Their, their ability to process information is gummed up. And that's a very real physiological response. Again, however dumb we or they might think it is. And so it's not helpful to point out to them how irrational their fears are. Yeah, that doesn't help much, does it? 
No. <laughs> you know, somebody, somebody's really anxious. And we say, that's just stupid. Knock it off. <laughs> well, they could tell us it's stupid. They already know that it doesn't, it hasn't stopped their heart from pounding no. and it hasn't stopped the blood from leaving their extremities. They know it's dumb. We know it's dumb and they're still anxious. So no, that, that isn't real helpful to just remind them of what they already know that the plane's not going to crash. Don't be stupid. That, that doesn't work well. So if I were as one of the listeners, one who is experiencing anxiety, whether it's for the first time or it's ongoing for a while, what advice would you give me? How would a person get help? What's the best thing to do? Good question, because I think the question that somebody would maybe listening into this would have to ask themselves is, we all experience some level of stress and anxiety in, in the course of our life. If not, we're not really trying to do much. We're just going to do it, right? But the, the point at which I think you might need to get outside yourself and get help is you have to look at how much it, it's biting into your ability to function and, and how much does it get in the way of living and doing the normal things that you would like to do especially if it's stuff that you used to be able to do. And now, because of what you're feeling, you're avoiding doing things that you would have normally done. You normally would have liked to have gone out to lunch with your friends. Now you avoid it because when you do it, you're far more anxious and you're not quite sure why. Um, the other time is that if, if that anxiety is getting to a point where it's interrupting sleep, it's interrupting your appetite, th those kind of things, those are, those are moments when, again, no matter how irrational you might think it is, you need to know that there, there are straightforward ways to conquer your life back, but it, it'll probably need some professional help to walk you through, make sure that you're doing the things physiologically that you can, and then really to identify those pesky conscious and unconscious thoughts that are driving the whole works and give you some techniques to to uh, offset those thoughts. So it, it's really kind of simple. Is it getting in the way of your life? Does it interrupt? If it is, then there's no reason to have to live with it. And there's no reason to have to be ashamed of it. Just hug the monster and, and don't let it win. Well, in our last few minutes here together, as we're in this time of COVID, are you seeing an increase in people dealing with anxiety these days? I think it's changing. Um, when, when COVID first hit, we were dealing with a lot of fear about what to expect. A lot of it was, uh, just the unknown and what we were looking at. Cause remember it was going to be two weeks, flatten the curve, uh, don't overwhelm the hospitals and then go back to work living. And so, but there was some, a heightened fear, uh, an anxiety and a misunderstanding about what it is that we were looking at. As we're rolling into a new year at this point, I'm now seeing more worry and anxiety that isn't so much about what's going to happen right at the moment. It's how do we plan for the future? This keeps going. This is, it's, it's unrelenting. Where do we go from here? Um, and so, yeah, there is a, the, the anxiety is more about the unknown now in the long run rather than it is what's going to happen in the next two weeks. And that, that's, it's not as obvious, but it's actually more wearing and it's causing more stress, I think, on marriages and families because we just don't know what to expect. And so now the, 
the, the worrying really begins. Will we be able to go on vacation next year? What, how do I plan for this? What's going to happen? Can I get a job? Am I going to lose my job? They're more long-term fears that we're look, looking at than, than it was kind of the short term. So it's longer and, and maybe le- a little more subtle than it was. And the way to approach treatment is the same for this uh, kind of temporary state that we're in as it would be for any other time, I suppose. Well, it is. And being able to talk through and, and organize your thoughts. And in and, and this one, it's more about talking it out, I think. Taking a look realistically. If this happens, we can't control it. Uh, we want to control it. We can't control it. So how do we deal with a new reality, a new life where maybe we have a little less control? The other thing that I, I would just say real quickly before we get done is that we have a particular bent in Christianity and, and we're getting bad about it, I think, within the church setting is that uh, we're pretty darn sure the second coming is happening like next week. <laughs> so so people are looking at all these signs and say, wow, it's about to happen. And I really like Wilford Woodruff's old comment when they got to Utah and everybody wanted to know when they were going back to Missouri. And he says, well, I'm still planting cherry trees. Right. Well, I, I think in terms of our life, we don't know what's going to happen in this next year, but we should be planting cherry trees and not making short-term decisions about expecting that the second coming is going to be right away. Because I think that that's going to lead, lead to greater anxiety in ourselves and our families. Just live every life moving forward, do the best we can, and don't let that the fear of that second coming attack us, you know. Yes, there's an there's a Armageddon, but there is an Adam on Diamond. So let's let's take that as it comes and not let it overwhelm us. And to put that faith in play to help through the trials that we're yeah. experiencing. Yep. The the I think we have inspired leadership that's gonna get us through this. So we just keep listening to the prophet and planting cherry trees. It's a great visual. Well, Kevin, this has been wonderful to have you with us in this episode. Thank you very much for your perspective and your advice. We just really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. This is fun. Our guest on this episode has been Kevin Hinckley, a licensed professional counselor. I appreciate Kevin's expertise and the way he broadened my perspective and understanding of anxiety. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan.